Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. If you had to choose one word to describe the world right now, now don't, don't shout it out because profanity in church on Sunday morning is not real great, but if there was one word you could use to describe the world right now, what would it be? Maybe angry? D divided? D we'll settle for crazy. Maybe even evil or scary? Or how about just plain messed up? You see, my guess is that some of the words that probably didn't make your list to describe the world right now Love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> kindness, I don't think so. Gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, no. Probably not on too many of our lists. Well, I'm Ed Beeson, senior pastor here at Marysville Christian Church, and in the coming weeks we'll spend time talking about what the world needs now. These are things that we crave things that God knows that we need and only come from Him. And that's tough to remember because we have access to so much in our world right now, but yet we still struggle to find what we really need. Not what we want, but what we need. I mean, we'll chase what we crave and we'll binge on Netflix or work or play or even vacation or, or other kinds of fantasies to satisfy us, and yet when none of those leave us satisfied, we still end up looking for something to numb ourselves to the emptiness that we feel. If that sounds something like you or someone you know, you're going to be glad to join us in the coming weeks for this new series. It's entitled, What the World Needs Now. How do you not do that, right? Where were you when that song came out? <laughs> it should come as no surprise that God has given us the answer in Scripture that what the world needs now is love. Consider what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And here it is, evidence of the presence of God. Love, joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness, gentleness. And an obscure thing called self-control. But he says, these, there are no, there's no law against these things. And as you look at the list before you again in Scripture, this is what the world needs now. Think of any kind of issue that you know has your attention creating tension in the world, and it's because of the absence of these. You see, this is the abundant life that Jesus offered to any and all who would follow him, regardless of their politics, 
regardless of the cancel culture, social media, national media, regardless of their nationality, their race, their gender, their education, their address, their income, whether they're powered by nuclear, oil, electric, solar, wind, whether they're an enlightened vegan or a knuckle-dragon meat-eater. Anybody can have the abundant life that they crave if they're willing to accept this from Jesus. The thing is, though, this life doesn't just happen because of the right politicians or the right laws on the books. This life is the result of God at work in our life. And that is what the world needs now. But as certainly as the presence of God in our life gives us this kind of life, just as certainly the thief, a.k.a. Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy every one of these because he can't stand the presence of God at all, let alone in our life. And so he entices us to remove God from our life. Now, look at the passage again, and you'll see that God tells us how to get what we crave the most. It says in verse 22 and 23, but the Holy Spirit produces this. If you don't get anything else after this, take that nugget home with you for the rest of the week, okay? The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And then he goes on to list them again. You see, it's the same God who created us, who knows us best, who knows what we need the most, and he also knows how we can experience it. It's not going to come as a promotion. It's not going to come when we, well, it's not going to come any other way. You fill in the blank. We think we know what's best for us. And when we're convinced of that and we try to crowd things into our life, guess who gets crowded out? God. And the more God gets crowded out, the less we have of things like love and joy and peace. God gets crowded out when we do what we want to do. And he's not surprised by that. He does know us best. In, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6, the New Living Translation phrases it this way with this description. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Now, a more obscure translation, the Worldwide English Version says it this way, if you keep your mind on the things that your body wants to do, you'll die. <laughs> I love that translation. If you keep your mind on the things that your body wants to do, you'll die. What the New Living Translation, the New International Translation, and a lot of the other, of the other translations say, the, the sinful nature or the flesh, really means what comes naturally to you. Some of us are naturally right-handed. The rest of you are wrong. 
At least that's what they tried to convince my dad, who started out being left-handed, and his dad, who was a school principal, forced him to learn how to write right-handed by tying his hand behind his back. I know, child abuse, right? But he had pretty good handwriting. What comes naturally to you? It's your default. It's the mentality of what you instinctively feel. It's the knee-jerk reaction. Claudia and I were having a conversation on the way here this morning about some of the knee-jerk reactions that I felt like saying to someone, not her, this time. I learned the last time. But, but it's those knee-jerk reactions of what we instinctively want to do that ends up, getting in, that ends up with us getting in trouble. And we've created it ourselves because we keep our mind on what we feel like saying, what we think we ought to say, what we think we have to say, instead of what the Spirit of God himself, if he were our focus, would have us say. You see, it's our self-help approach to life, trying to make life better based on our inclinations and our instincts that gets us in trouble. And where does that come from? Well, part of it is instinctively there as part of our fallen nature. Another aspect of that, though, is it comes from the influence of others, things we heard them say. You've all raised those kids, right? That all of a sudden the kids or the grandkids pop off with a particular word or phrase and mom and dad instantly look at each other with eyes bugged out. Where did they hear that? And typically mom will say, well, you know, got the answer to that. But sometimes it's because of the influence of well-meaning advice that others give us. Sometimes it's because of marketing that we're flooded by. And sometimes it's the flat-out intimidation of others that tells us, well, we have to say this, we can't say that, or else. How's that work out for us? I mean, really. It says in Romans 8, verse 6, if we let our sinful nature control our mind, it leads to death. But it doesn't have to be that way. The New Living Translation would finish it with this phrase, but letting the Spirit control your life, as opposed to that sinful nature, as opposed to the things that your body wants to do, this, letting the Spirit control your mind, that's what leads to life. And don't miss this. That's what leads to peace. The UK version of the NIV phrases it this way. But the mind that's governed by the Spirit is life and peace. I've got a friend of mine who's been a truck driver for a number of years, and he talks about how excited he was to finally get a semi-truck that didn't have a governor on it. He was real excited about that, and he says, you know what, that sucker would move down the highway. But he says, all of a sudden, it began to dawn on me how long it was going to take me to stop that weight on that truck or adjust if somebody did something that was a little less than intelligent with a semi coming at them that fast. And he says, after that, I kind of appreciated the governor 
that wouldn't let me go as fast as I wanted to go. I don't know anything about driving semis. I do know about cruise control and how beneficial it is when you've got blue skies and sunshine and no top on the car and you've got good tunes and your wife beside you going down the road and then you see a cop. <laughs> and there's still that little <gasps> part of your life that's a response and then you realize, oh, I've got it set on cruise control, never mind. He describes the mind governed by not blue skies and good tunes and your wife, but a mind that's governed by the Spirit of God within you. When that happens, you don't have to worry. You can be at peace. Now, it's learning to surrender to his truth and allowing his presence in your life to govern, to rule, some might even say to lord it over us, to live with him as the lord of your life, that allows you to live your life with an eternal perspective, his eternal perspective, not just the blue sky of the moment or the open road before you. Now that's not easy. Because unlike the car, you can't just hit cruise control, set it, and let it go. Life and peace come from learning to live your life deliberately and intentionally, trusting His will and His way of life that is the way to be blessed. So here's what God says. What the world needs now it does not originate with us. It comes from an outside source that we allow to be inside. God tries to show us that what we crave the most can't be found by satisfying those natural instincts. John would later explain the same thing that Paul was trying to say this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, we should love each other. Because love comes from God. We learn to love because love comes from God. It only makes sense that a series on what the world needs now starts with love. Because God is identified, even defined by love, to the point where we're actually told God is love. He's synonymous. And that's why we're told that everything can be summed up with this. Love God and love others. Now there's a, a beginning, a, a source to the kind of love that the world needs now, and that comes from God. Dear friends, we should love each other because love comes from God. This isn't something that we're going to be able to dig down deep and white-knuckle our ride out like, like Maxine on a roller coaster ride. She's apparently famous for those. But that's not how we live our life in a way that brings peace. The world doesn't need more self-centered and self-serving type of love that comes from within us. That's pretty much going to revolve around self-gratification more than anything else. What I feel, what I want, how I react, what I think. 
But the love that the world typically experiences is based on just that. What makes us feel good about ourselves? If you make me feel good about me, we're probably going to get along great. If you don't make me feel too good about me, I'm probably not going to feel too good about you. That's how the world experiences that love. But how about if we actually take the time to listen to the word of God that was given to John for our benefit? Here's 1 John 4, verses 7 through 19. Dear friends, we should love each other because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now that's not a threat. That's just an explanation. In verse 9, then he says, This is how God showed his love, as opposed to the kind of natural self-gratifying love that we typically live. God shows his love to us, as opposed to what the world typically calls love, he sent his one and only son into the world so that we could actually have life through him. And in verse 10, he gets even more specific. This is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us. He sent his son to die in our place, to take away our sins, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we also ought to love one another. For no one has seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. You see, that's the idea of God's Spirit living in us, guiding our thoughts, governing our mind, convicting us about the right thing to do or the thing that we shouldn't have done. This is how we know that we live in God and that He lives in us because He gave us His Spirit. We've seen, he says in verse 14, and can testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God has God living in him, and they live in God. And so we know the love that God has for us. Don't miss this part. And we rely on that love. We rely on that love. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. You see, this is why people who learn about Jesus and love like Jesus actually end up looking like Jesus in how they live their life. There's a paraphrase referred to as God's Word. In verse 17, it phrases it like this. God's love has reached its goal in us. Remember what happened because of God's love? He sent his son to die for us. Well, that wasn't the end goal. The end goal wasn't, well, let, let him explain it. God's love has reached its goal in us when we look ahead to the day of judgment with confidence. Why? Because in this life, we have become like Jesus.
It's not because we got our way more often than we didn't. We look ahead to the day of judgment with confidence, not because we've got gold attendance stars you know, for coming to church. We look forward to the day of judgment with confidence, like Deb was talking about during our communion time, because in this life we become more like Jesus. And I love the phrasing of verse 18 in the Living Bible when he says, we have no fear of someone who completely loves us. You know what it was like when your kids were little and you were trying to get, I don't, I, don't, I guess this is a dad thing. It's at least a guy thing. I, I don't ever remember one time seeing a mom stand at the bottom of the steps with her arms out, jump to their toddler. I, do you? I don't ever remember seeing a mom do that. It's always us. It was always the guys. Come on, jump, I'll catch you. And if they jump, it's because they know they can trust you. We have no fear of someone who completely loves us. God's love for us eliminates all dread of what he might do to us. Doesn't that describe why we're scared of judgment? Doesn't that describe why, why people are afraid to die? They're afraid of what God might do to them. They're afraid of what they know that they've got coming because of what they've done to God. And then he goes on to say it this way. If we're afraid of what he might do to us, it shows that we're not fully convinced that he really loves us. Man, is that powerful. We love because God first loved us that was a lot all at one time but did you hear what was repeated over and over and over again it was written by john who sat with jesus at the last supper the night he was betrayed and crucified he was described as the disciple that john uh, that jesus loved he was the only one of the disciples to die of old age when everybody else in the room except for judas was executed in an incredibly brutal way Imagine the pressure as the last remaining apostle that he must have felt 10, 20, 30 years later to make sure that Jesus' followers get it right. That's why you hear him say in John 4, 9, 1 John 4, 19, this is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us. You see, what the world really needs is not a smack in the back of the head as much as some of us would love to offer that. What the world needs now is not somebody to get their attention and like that little one to grab their face in their hands. Wow, that was loud, sorry. I forgot that it was here. You know, where you just want to grab their face and bring it around so that you can look them in the eye and you have their total, complete attention until they shut their eyes. Sounds like and feels like kind of the way the world lives sometimes, doesn't it? You can make me look at you, but I can't, you can't make me listen. What the world needs now is that. What the world needs now is to know God's love for us. And what I need 
is to believe what God has already done for me. Let me ask you a question, and again, it's just a rhetorical one for the sake of the sermon. Have you ever thought about the first time the word love was used in the Bible? Was it God's response to creation in Genesis? I love what you've done to this place. Was it Adam's response the first time he saw the woman that God made for him? Baby, I love you. No, the first time the word love is used doesn't happen until the 22nd chapter of Genesis. God had decided that Abraham and his descendants would be his chosen people to bless the world. He promises to make his descendants into a great nation. And despite being a hundred years old, he gives him a son, Isaac, at that age. And in chapter 22, the first couple of verses, after that happens, and Isaac grows up to probably be a young man, God tests Abraham's faith by calling him by name. Abraham, yes, he replied, here I am. Take your only son, Isaac, and here it is, whom you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as an offering to me on the mountain that I'll show you. Did you catch that? The first time love is used in the Bible involves a father's sacrifice of his son. Now, if you don't know the story, relax. Abraham proves his commitment and trust in God, and God intervenes to stop him from actually sacrificing his son Isaac. But because of his willingness to sacrifice his only son, that he loved more than anything, it changed the world. His family continues to grow, and eventually, several generations later, another son is born named Jesus. And the first time the word love is used in the New Testament is found in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. No, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't in Mary and Joseph's wedding vows. Well, I mean, it may have been, but it wasn't recorded for us in Scripture. And it wasn't even in the Bethlehem story of a baby that's born in a manger and a mom who looks at him and says, I love him so much. No, that wasn't it either. And it wasn't even when the gifts are brought by the wise men and she says, I love it, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, that wasn't it either. It's actually several years later when Jesus has grown up and decides now is the time to start the work that God sent me to do. He goes to meet John the Baptist to be baptized by him, and afterwards he comes up out of the water, and Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 says that a voice is heard from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love. I am pleased with him. Let that grab a hold of you. The first time love is used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament involves a father's sacrifice of his son. Huh, I wonder if that's coincidental. Probably not. You see, love is an action. It's not just what you say to somebody, it's what you do for somebody. Love is what God has done for us. It's what God is now doing in us. Don't miss that. It's not just the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's the presence of God in our lives. 
And one day, it's how God will judge us in love. What the world needs now is to know God's love for us. That same theme is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. What happens when God comes to the rescue of His people who at the time were slaves in Egypt? You know, the whole Egyptian, Pharaoh, Moses, burning bush, ten plague thing. He sends ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to set him free. Moses leads him out into the desert, and then God shows up to say, All right, you're free now. You're free to follow me. But God doesn't start out by giving him a bunch of laws and commandments right away. The first thing God does is he calls Moses to him and he wants him to remind his people of what he's already done for them because of his love for them. And this is what he says in Exodus 19. Every one of you has seen what I did to the people of Egypt. You saw how I carried you up out of Egypt as if on eagle's wings. And I brought you here to me. It's after that reminder of what he's already done for them that he leads them to Mount Sinai with all the smoke and thunder and lightning. I mean, think Mount St. Helens. It looks like the whole thing's going to blow. They're scared to death, and God says, don't you touch this. Anybody that touches it dies. And there they get their first glimpse of God and his expectations for them. So that when he says to them in Exodus 20, here's how I need you to live your life, and gives Moses the Ten Commandments, before he starts laying out those commandments, he starts with this message. Then then God gave the people all of these instructions. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place where you were slaves. Before the rules came the reminder of the rescue. What the world needs now is the same thing they needed to know then, that God has rescued us. So that when he gives his commandments, it comes after we remember the rescue. Here's the point. Before you start trying to straighten yourself out, or those people in your life that you just want to pop in the back of the head, Please don't do that. Before you start trying to straighten yourself or other people out with a bunch of rules, the first thing that God wants you to do is to remember how much he loves you and what he's already done to rescue you. Now that's nothing new because it's consistent with his story and who he is. You know the verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That's what he's done to rescue us. The love God has for us isn't just warm, fuzzy feelings and happy thoughts about you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's because God loves you that he gave up the son that he loved for you. Remember the guy in Mark 12? You may not remember the location. You probably remember the guy and the conversation he has with Jesus, though. He comes to Jesus and he says, what's the most important thing that I need to do? And what was the first thing Jesus told him? There's only one God who's the Lord. Love that Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second one is like it. 
love your neighbor. What the world needs now, more than ever, is not more declarations of independence from God. What the world needs now more than ever is to know God's love for us. It needs to know, I need to know, what God has already done to show me how much he loves me. And that'll change your value of human life. Knowing how much God has done for you will change your sense of self-worth before that same God. That's when we'll be motivated to do right by God and when we'll allow that God to work through us to do right by others. And isn't that the point of the prodigal son in Matthew 15, or excuse me, Luke 15? Both sons forgot how much the father loved him. Both sons forgot what the father had already done for them. And it affected how they acted without the father's love to guide them. You see, what the world needs now, more than ever before, is love. And God's love for us is the sweetest love there is. One more time for emphasis, okay? 1 John 4, verse 10. This is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us. He sent His Son to die in our place, to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we also ought to love one another. We love because God first loved us. So here's an appetizer for the rest of the series, What the World Needs Now. We'll talk about how what the world needs now is more joy and less hate, more peace and less war, more patience and less of a short fuse, more kindness instead of more retribution, more goodness like the goodness of God, more gentleness instead of forcing our way, more faithfulness and less spontaneousness, more self-control when that self is controlled by the Spirit of God within us. Here's the good news. God is the source of all that. It's not up to you to just white-knuckle that right out. God in you is the source of that in your life. David, I want you in a praise team. Join me up front. We'll close out with this thought. What the world needs now is not just a neat little song from the past by Dionne Warwick. It's also descriptive of well, you might say looking for love in all the wrong places. And it's not just another cliche song title. It, 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 it's, it's true though, right? It explains why we haven't found yet what we're looking for most. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah, okay, I did that one on purpose. But it fits, right? Know this. God sent his son to come for us. Those who are willing to trust his love find what they need most in this life and the life to come. The question for you is, are you willing to commit your life to loving God in response to how much he's done because of his love for you? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And one of the starting points would be his command to change the direction your life is headed in. 
in Bible terms, that's referred to as repent. Turn around. And as an indication of that, be baptized for the forgiveness of your rebellion against Him. Those who have need to allow Him to guide their life with His love instead of just responding and reacting in the moment. Are you? Will you? Live for Him. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.